This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. But now we'd love to welcome you to Bite Into It with Tyler and Vanessa tonight. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Vanessa. What's going on? Oh, you know, just got back from a sneaky couple of weeks of annual leave oh, and very, bragging. very excited to be back at the station. It's a, it's a lovely experience to kind of miss Triple R while you're away. Of course. Yeah. Um, uh, tonight we uh, are going to be covering a little bit about uh, social networking in China because um, there's been some news about that lately. And I'm also going to be a bit self-indulgent and talk about some tech experiences I had in Tokyo because I think that people uh, might be interested, mm. judging by the amount of Melbournians I know who've been to Japan in recent times, I think it might be relevant to a few people and hopefully it'll be interesting. Yeah. If there's anywhere to talk about tech, it's Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That as I discovered. Um, but before we get to that, Tyler, what's been going on in more local news? Uh, we got a little bit of an update on the uh, old e-health record um, situation that we'd been talking about for the last uh, little while. Um, so there has been a draft law um, that has just uh, been debated in the Senate, or will be debated in the Senate, sorry, um, about the uh, privacy of um, the e-health system. Um, so uh, the draft laws will be intended to protect patients um, and has passed the first hurdle of parliament um, and will be uh, debated in the next few weeks, hopefully. And um, so, yeah, the opposition says that the uh, measures passed in the lower house on Wednesday do not go far enough and have flagged a debate in the Senate after an inquiry. Yeah, it's interesting that they also quoted um, that 900,000 people have already opted out of the mm. My Health record since mid-July. Yeah. And there's a little bit of time left for them to continue to opt out. So I think that, yeah, there's been a lot of commentary about that on Twitter with people sort of saying they're waiting for the system to improve and for some protections to be put in place before they're willing to opt in. Exactly. There uh, are, however, you know, a lot of benefits for people with, um, you know, ongoing and complex medical issues. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting seeing that tension there where people are like, I'd be really grateful if my results could be consolidated in a place and I would know that they were handed over when I go to specialists and do things. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to yeah, sort of see how it pans out. It's definitely a, um, a uh, thing that could be helpful for a lot of people. Mm. But, uh, of course, definitely. Right. We'll, we'll see if they get it right. I really hope these protections, these extra privacy protections, get through the Senate. Mm. Um, in uh, more lighthearted news, let's hear about Apple. Yeah, Apple have held their annual iPhone event uh, and let us know their, their future plans for a few of their products. So they are updating the iPhone X with uh, faster chips and they've got a better camera. They're adding a bigger model. Um, they're also introducing uh, the iPhone XR, which is just a product that comes in a few different colours. Uh, they have done a bit of work um, on the chip side of things. So this is where it gets a bit geeky. A seven nanometer process, um, which is kind of a difficult thing to do. It's a, you know, very tiny processing on mm -hmm. the chip level um, and an expanded version of their neural engine, which is a machine learning silicon. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, really worth heading to the Apple events um, page. Uh, they're, you know, a lot of, they're sharing a lot of detail there. They have also redesigned the, uh, the Apple Watch so it's the first iteration of the design of that. It's got a new EKG sensor in it. Um, the watch, 
you know, didn't really capture people's imagination that much when mm. it was first launched. However, it sold really strongly and really doesn't have any competition in the market. There's a lot of speculation that um, with over, over the 50 million units out there that it will be a big part of their strategy to bring in um, some sort of glasses type of hardware yeah. that will then work. Yeah, Handy Google Glass eye. coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Apple, the Apple Glass, Apple I guess. Glass. Yeah, um, so that's something to watch out for. Excellent. Um, in uh, more futuristic tech news, mm-hmm. um, the um, electronic vehicle startup in has been invested in in Saudi Arabia to compete with Tesla, Google, and Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, so Saudi Arabia's foreign wealth fund has agreed to invest over a billion dollars in a small startup called Lucid Motors. Um, the Silicon Valley-based company is reportedly years behind schedule on construction of its Arizona plant and production of its flagship vehicle, vehicle the Lucid Air. Um, but uh, ever since the crude oil prices began to plummet in 2014, looks like Saudi Arabia is looking for other investment opportunities. Yeah, it's really interesting, this one, because Elon Musk um, did tweet that he had potential investment lined up to take Tesla private. Mm. And it now turns out that this was probably the investment bunch that was going to invest in him. Now, since he's under investigation from, you know, the Securities Commission in the the (laughs) States about those tweets and the the possible effects on um, investment in Tesla... this Saudi Arabian investment group has, has pulled out and... Yeah. Obviously gone a different direction. Yeah. yeah. It, it's curious to see whether this was quite an impulsive decision or, yeah. you know, whether they had researched a whole lot of different companies. Mm. Uh, obviously, uh, Muskie's in a little bit of trouble mm. in this sort of situation. Um We've, we're going into uh, browser extension territory. Yeah, that's right. So um, Ghostery, uh, who people might know because they had one of, I think it was the first anti-tracking browser extension out there, have today launched a new version of their privacy browser for Android and iOS. It uh, Protection against tracking um, seems to have come a bit more mainstream with um, Apple's Safari browser and Mozilla's Firefox, um, both building in uh, some protection against trackers. But Ghostry released this um, launch information with a bit of research that they've done into trackers. So uh, from some research that they conducted within a confined period, so a two-week evaluation period with 850,000 anonymous users Mm -hmm. and 144 page loads, they found within that two-week period, 77.4% of all page loads contained trackers. Uh, The number of trackers ranged from, you know, in the 10 plus sort of category, you had about 16%. In the two to nine uh, trackers per page, you had about 43%. Um, Only one tracker per page was about 17% and 22% of the page loads had zero trackers. Mm. So it's really um, a widespread issue, but quite an invisible one if you're not using any sort of um, protection tool. Um, and the reach of the tracking scripts, like who do these tracking scripts, you know, feed their data to? Mm. 46.4 of them are Google Analytics sort of scripts. Yeah. Uh, they're about uh, 22% Facebook Connect, around 18 for DoubleClick, which is also Google, 15.1% Google Publisher Tags, 14.6% Google Tag Managers, um, nine point, you know, 10% Google AdSense. What a Google in there. Yeah. Lord Google, uh, collecting data. And then there's lots of others like, you know, Twitter buttons and Facebook custom yeah, audiences and social plugins. A little bit of a uh, scary graph that we've got pulled up in front of us here. It's um, out of the uh, one, two, three, four, uh, ten odd um, people on the graph, um, prob- uh, all but 
two of them are Facebook or Google. Mm. Three of them are mm. Facebook or Google. Um, interesting. Yeah, they start to know quite a lot about us. Mm. Um, back into uh, politics, um, the Australian government is rushing its anti-crypto legislation into Parliament uh, a mere week after public consultation into the rules closed. So a party meeting yesterday uh, f- by the Federal Coalition cleared the bill to be introduced into Parliament, giving the strong impression the government hopes to push the draft law onto the books as soon as possible. Uh, so this is the same law that was floated earlier this year before a uh, change in Prime Minister, one of those ones, mm. uh, gummed up the works. Um So one of the most contentious aspects of the bill as it stands is that it allows law enforcement to ask communication service providers to give uh, investigators access to unencrypted messages under an escalating set of notices. Uh, We talked about this a few weeks ago, um, I believe. Uh, It's really the the section of of information under the the Greens campaigns, get a warrant. Mm. Uh, We look at things where we've moved from... um, warrants being required and, mm. and, you know, judicial oversight being required of um, police actions and, mm. and uh, investigatory sort of, you know, policing actions. But, yeah, we, we're moving to a place where there can just be voluntary compliance agreements between different agencies. Mm. And so that the lack of oversight or the change in oversight is is the area that's really concerning people of who course, care about yeah. privacy. It's, um, I, I remember uh, reading about it a while ago and one of the sort of higher level of um, inquiry uh, sort of would force devs to actually... Uh, code into a like a whole backdoor thing specifically yeah. for for the warrants um, um yeah and this needed. is exactly yeah. the problem with this so beyond the regulatory problems and the lack of oversight um there are technically problems um with the idea of weakening encryption mm. and having breakable encryption this is where i'm quite happy with the stance of big companies like apple and their lobbying in the space for you know the right of users to uh, have unbreakable encryption because the whole concept of breakable encryption is an incredibly um, oxymoron it is yeah, yeah. It, it makes it makes things vulnerable and the second you have a vulnerability that can be exploited and things just aren't going to work <laughs> in a straightforward way uh, just because you hope that they will Oh, I hope it's uh, set a really lovely mood for you out there while we get ready to talk about China's social credit system. Now, really, stories about this have been kicking around for a few years. Um, there's a great piece in The Economist in uh, 2016 about uh, China's digital dictatorship, but the ABC put together an amazing um, like media-rich news story about uh, China and their social credit system Um to exert control over its 1.4 billion citizens. Tyler, when did this come to your attention? Um, pretty much uh, this morning. I was uh, trawling through the ABC, as I do from time to time, and uh, came upon this um, and was pretty much drawn in just by the design of the article, which is uh, not something that happens often. It's It's got videos integrated to it, it scrolls, um, but enough about how it's designed. Um, and reading through it, it's, uh, it's a very... Um, concerning but also interesting uh, oversight um, or uh, overview, overview, overview is the word I'm looking for, of um, the new trials that China's doing into a social credit system, essentially using its CCTV cameras, data collection, um, metadata um, on every one of its citizens and assigning them a point score, which can uh, lead to more or less privileges within the country. Yeah, I mean, there's a few social issues with this about, Mm. you know, entrenching privilege uh, and being very difficult to break out of disadvantage. Mm. 
But some of the other really insidious parts of it are how um, we know that social media not only exposes our personal behaviours but also our relationships. Mm. And something that was really interesting in this article that I hadn't really gleaned from some of the previous reporting on this topic was that there were relational aspects and your personal score mm. could be affected by close ties that you had with people who were perhaps less compliant with the party, with the state, mm-hmm. um, and that that could affect your, your score. So even even just knowing people who were, I guess, uh, activists mm. or in some way yeah. you know, challenging, which could be academics, it could be artists, it could, it could be anyone in, in, mm. in a regime. It, um, uh, the, the article outlines two sort of case studies uh, within the trial. Um, one lady who is a, uh, a well-off um, working uh, woman who uh, is very sort of... Uh, what, what do you call it? Patriotic, yeah. and um, and has has all the right friends and uh, the right husband, and um, and the husband and actually works for the party. The husband works for the party yeah. as well, and um, has a young kid, and as a young kid, and she out of the uh, point score of eight hundred in this particular trial, she's a seven eighty two, um, and the other case study is of a uh, a journalist actually who writes about some of the uh, the wrongdoings of the party, and obviously has an extremely low score to the point where he can't even catch public transport anymore. He's not allowed. To yeah, he can't take a fast train to yeah. another state because mm-hmm. that's too much movement and yes. I guess they're restricting the movement of exactly. people with dangerous ideas. Yeah, and I, I know it's a, it's a bit uh, cliche to say, but it's a very 1984, isn't it? It uh, is. Mm. Um, and in more recent times, we'd say it's very like that particular episode of uh, Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the five-star rating episode. Absolutely. Um, um, it's interesting the whole way the, art- the article um, dives into just what it means to actually assign to social standing Mm. a number. And and we know that, you know, we all live in societies where we've got different amounts of access to to privilege. Mm. You know, we're born in a a certain state with a certain amount of um, access to education and, you know, healthy food Mm. and proximity to health services and transport and, you know, proximity to to jobs and that that sort of thing. Like all all of it's so complex. And then to see it boiled down to a number, mm. you really think this could happen anywhere. Now, some of the better commentary that I've seen about this sort of issue has come from local um, researchers, tech journalists, um, freelance investigative and data journalists, and activists, people like Asha Wolf and Rosie Williams. Um, you can follow Asha underscore Wolf on Twitter and um, Rosie Williams tweets at info underscore AUS, Oz, Info Oz. Uh, both of them are, are worth reading, particularly about this sort of issue. And, and what they call out is the fact that there are the green shoots of surveillance culture in Australia. And I don't want to be a fear monger about these sort of things, but it is it is probably, you know, it's, it's the reason why we bang on about, you know, erosion of privacy and the importance of it and that we don't want people being, I guess, complacent about the idea that I have nothing to hide. It's mm. not actually about nothing to hide. It's about... When does something become illegal, or yeah, when is become something, an infringement of rights? Yeah, when does something, you know, get get codified as, as problematic by a government mm. because you know a, a crazy person gets elected as a president? Mm. You know, like <laughs> if these sort of things happen, who's at risk? Who are the most vulnerable in your society? Mm. You know, can people be stigmatized by having you know health issues relayed? We know that they can be. You know, particularly in areas of mental health. Now we're making tremendous, you know, inroads on these sort of issues, but nobody's perfect and it's really important to have protections for our most vulnerable. I think that 
uh, Asher Wharf and Rosie Williams have, have written much better than I'll ever speak about these sort <laughs> of issues, about where these sort of issues intersect with things like cash-lit debit cards, um, managing income for, for you know, people who are on benefits mm. or how, you know, the, the mandatory data retention laws, which were introduced in 2015 and came into effect last year, that allow data to be retained for up to two years and access without a warrant, how these sort of things can feed in. The, the legislation that's about to go to the Senate about protecting um, the privacy of people's data inside their My Health records mm. is completely related to these sort of things. These are why that every step where we talk about gathering people's data and potentially integrating it and then potentially making decisions about their access to services and things within our society all become really important. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, there was a uh, very uh, interesting interview I heard on this station um, a few days ago about um, the idea of um, anti-association laws mm-hmm. um, and, and that sort of comes into it as well, like um, sort of monitoring who you who you um, associate with and uh, making restrictions on, on your life due to that. Um, and that there was... Um, uh, if you chuck that in Google, I'm sure you'll find a couple articles about the recent recent changes to those laws yeah, that, are, that are going through. Absolutely. Um, I also think that there's there's a relationship to um, the the social like the way social networking has trolls and that people can be victimised by um, you know on social platforms and targeted and and sort of harassed. Um, really worth listening back to uncommon sense. Um, Amy Mullins spoke to Julian Burnside QC uh, earlier th- uh, on the on the 13th of September, I think, and um, talked about, uh, you know, some threats to multiculturalism in Australia. Mm. And I thought, yeah, with the rise of the, the you know, alt-right in various places around the world, it's a really relevant time to be having these discussions about speaking about, about the benefits of multiculturalism <laughs> and, and these sort of things. So it, it's, we find ourselves in unpredictable times in, in some ways. It just seems that, you know, some things have been a little scary out there politically. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's a really timely um, sort of tale to, to read about China's social credit system and just think, all right, well, how do we want our society to be here and how mm. do we want to interactive technology and make it work for us mm. and not be a slave to it, especially some sort of social credit system? <laughs> <laughs> it all sounds a bit dire. Yeah. Tyler, um, let's let's pick up from here because after this, I'm going to rave about Tokyo a little. Yeah. I think. Let's, yeah, let's go upwards. I think we might leave it just on a quote from uh, the, the party of China. Um, So the outline for the system says it will allow the trustworthy to roam freely under heaven while making it hard for the discredited to take a single step. I've just spent a couple of weeks in Tokyo and couldn't help but geek out because it is the place to do it. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about some of the tech-aligned experiences I had there. So one actually popped up through Airbnb because they've got this new feature called Airbnb Experiences and uh, I found this guy who was into new media art and so I thought, this is perfect for me. So I'm going to go and meet Yuichi. And uh, he ended up taking me to the NTT Intercommunication Centre, which is a media art gallery in the Tokyo Opera City Tower in Shinjuku. And NTT in Japan is a bit like the Bell Telecom Company for the States and North America. And it's it was the original network of telecommunication services, made a lot of money doing that and then invested a lot of that back mm. into arts projects and other things um, and technology, you know, research and development. 
It is now private, but it was public for a long time. And uh, because of that, I think, you know, they've got quite an old collection of bits of uh, telecommunications technology. And part of this exhibition was this beautiful timeline that you could walk along that um, positioned little pieces of hardware uh, next to like the music of the times or iconic, you know, products of the time. So you had things like... uh, Ibo, the, like the first robot dog and things like in this, <laughs> in this timeline that, that yeah. you're walking through and Game Boys and, you know, different sorts of record players and, and camera equipment and, and, you know, mobile phones and what have you, which was super fun. Uh, the current exhibition is called Open Space in Transition and it really explored the way that technologies are jumping out of the screens into the spaces that we inhabit. Mm. Uh, one of the, the great installations was a VR experience that people had to go into individually. And the idea was that you would uh, experience contemporary dance, but be put within the dance. So you're surrounded by the, the dancers, the the world around you flips and the colours flip at a certain point and it's, it is completely immersive and it's also haptic. So you had to put your hands on this globe in front of you at the time and it's giving you, you know, sort of vibration feedback based on the proximity of people to you or the world flipping around you a bit. And um, it was amazing. I was quite trepidatious in it because it's like, I didn't know it was going to be a contemporary dance experience. For me, there's these black blobby dancers approaching me. I'm like, uh they going to go through me and they do you know you just okay you know and i'm yeah. used to first person shooter games for, from many years ago and i'm like is this going to turn violent at some point like what's happening it's like but one, it, one of those uh, 3d movies from the 90s so they come straight at you it actually felt even more psychedelic than that it felt like watching an old felix the cat sort of animation or something but you were in it <laughs> so it, it did feel retro and futuristic at the same time just amazing mm. so that was called the other in you it was a 2017 piece by uh, richie owaki and um ycam uh so that was kind of cool there was also a haptic television experience where you sat down and you hugged a cushion. Um, so you're sitting on like a beanbag and you're hugging a cushion and then you've got a remote control. And as you change the channels and watch different things like a nature documentary or a food program, the cushion had all these, um, uh, I guess, sensor capabilities in there and would change depending on what you're watching. So if you watch these bees buzzing around a hive, mm. the, the cushion started vibrating against you or um, if you're watching something with food and, and um, bubble gum or like popcorn or something that was there popping, it would create popping sensations and you'd flick to something that was fireworks and it would try and give you the, the deep bass rumble that you got from hearing... From in person. Yeah, the depth yeah. of those, those charges. Okay. It was very inventive, um, probably a little... I mean, it was a little strange. Yeah. It wasn't super sophisticated in execution yeah. at the moment, but it was well on the path. Something else that was tremendous in the exhibition was um, a piece by James Bridle. I think he's a UK-based artist, but um, this is a video that came out in 2017 that's called Autonomous Trap 001. And it's a video of the artist as he creates a double circle by drawing lines in the style of, like, um, you know, on a road you're not allowed to drive through a straight line, mm-hmm. but you're allowed to go through broken lines, yeah. like dashed lines. So what he did is created a trap for an autonomously driven vehicle, which had dashed lines on the outside, but a straight line on the inside so that the car oh. was allowed to enter it, but then it ends up inside a, a continuous straight line and can't like a, exit. Like a one-way mirror. Yeah. yeah. Sort of thing, yeah. 
And it was just such a clever, cheeky idea, <laughs> such a playful idea, beautifully executed in this mountainous sort of, you know, location with a little <laughs> flat space that he could do it in. Yeah, really, really clever stuff. And he had a longer piece there too. So, that you know, there were video pieces and there were interactive pieces. There were, there were audio-based pieces, you know, with quite painful white noise mm. things. And, um, yeah, it's a tremendous exhibition. Uh, you know, they contemplated the original Google homepage. There were some things there about that. So, really, really worth checking out. And their exhibitions change every now and again. So mm-hmm. I think this one's up for so, like a year. So highly recommended for anyone who visits Tokyo? Absolutely. Yeah. So the NTT Intercommunication Centre. Wow. That's cool. So something else that was being highly Instagrammed in the time I was there mm-hmm. was a, a, a set of work by Team Lab. Now, if anyone went to NGV's triennial um, exhibition mm-hmm. that was on a little while back, it was pretty fantastic. There was one room there which was called... Moving creates vertices and vertices create movement. And that was that room that was a bit like being in a cave with projections coming from above and swirling lights that were interactive. So as you moved or stopped moving, they would start to swirl around you and you could interact with them a bit. Mm. It was a tremendous experience, that room, once your eyes adjusted to the light and you tried not to hit anybody and hit the mirrored walls around it. It was just very immersive. So that was created by Team Lab Borderless, who are a group that... um, that collaborate. What they had created in Odaiba, Tokyo, which is kind of like the Docklands of Tokyo. It has an <laughs> eye, you know, and it has big warehouses and open stretches and it's by the water and and it's <laughs> on, you know, reclaimed land basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's that same feeling. So what they did there, they had a lot of space to work with. They had like a three-dimensional 10,000 square metre space with 520 computers and 470 projectors creating a world. And you'd move in and out of different spaces. Some A lot of surfaces would be mirrored. Some were textured in like a felt so that when the projections hit them, they had this depth to them, which is mm. really clever. Um, th- you know, there was a lot of blackness, but there was this combination between... Uh, like voyeurism, like viewing mm-hmm. spaces where you could look at how other people were moving yeah. through the space and then very self-conscious use of the space, like lots of selfies being taken against beautiful projections and, and people being immersed in it or... Pe- people yeah. acting inwards and outwards at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so that was interesting. Um, there was this this space that they called a universe of water particles on a rock where people gather, <laughs> which was really what I called the selfie room. It was... <laughs> This massive room that you entered, people ended up climbing up onto this rock, standing there to have photos taken and then sliding down as if it's a, a, a yeah. slide. <laughs> and it was a strange experience. I'm not sure artistically how successful I found that. I think that opening up these sort of projections to people and people wanting to play in the spaces is really great. Did this particular space make me think in interesting ways? I mean, it was beautiful. There were details that really made you think, like the way that pixels would escape over surfaces and create the illusion of falling or something like mm. that. Like there were there were things that were interesting. And I think the, the viewing platform of that space where you were completely in the dark and voyeuristically looking down and looking at how people move through it, that was... I had a real emotional response to that. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. But actually being in the space... Not so much. I, I, I don't know. I would challenge... I, I would like to hear, you know, what the, what the intent was and, and what they're doing. But maybe at this point in these sort of technologies, it's enough to 
get people inside a space and get them thinking about how they would use it. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. It sounds like a sort of reconstruction of an of a real tourist attraction sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a really good way of looking at it, actually. Yeah. And maybe that's maybe that's where the point is. Yeah. You know, an artificial creation of a of a waterfall type environment and something mm. that people would normally take photos of as well. And yeah, uh, maybe you've nailed it, Tyler. Mm. You have I've to look at the videos. Got a degree in fine arts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a stunning room um, called the Crystal World, which was filled with LED ropes coming down and controlled by a panel representing elements. So sometimes when you're amidst the LED ropes, it felt like you were suddenly in a thunderstorm and there'd be sound as well. And so sound and light as rich, as beautiful, as Instagrammable. Um, but is, I'd is like this to where see you them. plug your Instagram? No, <laughs> I'd like to see them push it further. Like it was... It was um, I felt like there were, there were some minor minor complaints, like things like the uh, the sound loops that we go through were maybe too short for something for a place where people were spending two to three hours. Mm. Maybe things could have changed up a fraction more. Yeah, or, yeah. I, I understand what you. But mean. I don't yeah. want to take away. I mean, it was an epic achievement. It was huge. It was seamless. Mm-hmm. You know that it it really felt like they there wasn't a space in there that wasn't attended to. Yeah. Um, as someone who hasn't been to Japan or Tokyo, mm. uh, which would make sense if I hadn't been to Japan, I haven't <laughs> been to Tokyo, um, how did you find sort of like the level of tech integration in Tokyo compared to here in Melbourne? Like, did you find like you've lived your life a bit differently on to the I, everyday? It was more and less at the same time. Mm. I, I think that probably because they've had access to certain technologies before most of us, mm they look normal and they look worn in. Everything's not shiny, like in certain types of sci-fi films. (laughs) It's as simple as going to the bathroom and the toilets are all electronic toilets. Mm. So they'll play music and their bidets as well as toilets and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the toilets are high tech. Um, And when I went a little bit out of the city and was in areas where people were, where it was a bit more suburban, Mm. the amount of charging stations for electronic vehicles was huge. They were just everywhere. So that was interesting. Wow. Um, there were a whole lot of vending machines everywhere. People know that Japan's famous for vending machines. I think there's one for every 30 pe- per people or something yeah. like that. Get some canned coffee. Yeah, yeah. but increasingly um, I saw more interactive uh, vending machines as well. Mm. So ones we... I didn't actually recognise one of them as a vending machine until someone went up to it and started hitting on it and then something came out of this little gap in the bottom that I hadn't noticed and I went, that's a vending machine too. So that was interesting. Um, There are are very helpful little screens above all the doors on your trains Mm -hmm. so that you know which stations are coming up and which you've passed and which direction you're going in so you instantly know whether you're on the right train or not. Super handy. So those sort of embedded in day-to-day life things were there. But then there's other things that are more difficult. So maybe people use different sorts of apps to what we use Mm -hmm. because typing in Japanese is more laborious. So they'll use apps that let you draw on the screen. And I've seen this in China too. You know, like if you think of Weibo, it's the same sort of thing. You'll move to a a sort of touch panel and... And scribble things yeah. in and things take more time. Instead of going through 2,000 kanji. Yeah, yeah, so they've got different shortcuts for, for things yeah. like that. And I wasn't there long enough to, to mm. observe all of those differences. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. I've got to say the standout tech experience over there was going to Square Sounds, which is a chiptunes festival. <sighs> it, was, it actually originated in um, Melbourne, but uh, 
it went to Tokyo pretty quickly in its life. So um, it's a two-day festival. I managed to catch day one of it and 19 musicians and visualists from around the world gathered to perform chip music at Koenji High in Tokyo. Um, it was organised by Blip Tokyo and Cheap Beats Records and uh, there was an Aussie there who we've chatted to on Byte before. So Dot A was over there. He's from Brisbane. He's been a stalwart of our chip scene and he uh, he did a really great set. Um, yeah, he uses Game Boys in his music mm-hmm. and is, is just really a really fun performer to watch. Uh, there were also some great Japanese performers there. One was Quarter 330, who's um, part of the UK-based label Hyperdub. And um, he, I guess first came into the limelight when he released a single on Hyperdub and a remix of the Flying, Lo- Flying Lotus track on Warp. Um, he's performed with Prefuse 73, Darkstar, The Bug, who's on Ninja Tune, um, Code 9, who's on Hyperdub as well. Um, he was part of Red Bull Music Academy Tokyo 2014. Um, his music has appeared on compilations um, with artists like Radiohead and Mouse on Mars and Ministry of Sound. Um, yeah, so he's, he's a really interesting guy. He was good fun. There was Cubby from Norway who was kind of interesting because he works with Game Boys and plays bass guitar uh, and he had a band with him. He had a drummer and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a keyboardist, so that was cool. Bitshifter from the States was there. Super fun set. Um, these artists don't feel like they have to stay true to a particular like dance music genre when they play. So mm. he started off very drum and bassy and then moved into like different styles, but it was much more about showcasing the chip music. And the headliner of the night was Chip Tanaka. So those who are really into computer games might know him. He was involved in the development of Nintendo's game sound chip. And oh. so the way Nintendo music yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. is really down to him. He also helped develop um, various games, including uh, the Mother Earthbound series, Dr. Mario and Metroid. So All he's favourites of mine. super famous. Mm. Um, he's come out to Melbourne before. I've seen him play at the Evelyn as part of Square Sounds in Melbourne. Wow. But it was great to see him in his hometown with a home crowd. Mm. Um, at the moment, you know, he's created uh, lots of uh, anime songs for Pokemon TV. <laughs> <laughs> so for some people, they'd know that. But he DJs a lot now. And what was really stunning about his set is that he's got this artistic freedom and he really is a bit unpredictable and slightly psychedelic in his performances. And and he looks like, you know, a Japanese hippie man. A a cool guy. He he really looks looks very cool, (laughs) very relaxed, um, very inspiring, very creative. So, yeah, there was plenty of technology to satisfy anybody in town. Yes. This is just what happened to be on. Definitely. On the no, that's cool. I was there. Um, I, I will say that if you're interested in seeing some interesting uh, uses of uh, tech, both new and old, in music and art, um, you should probably head down to the One Day Festival in Sydney Soft Centre that, that's coming up uh, with a lot of local Melbourne artists heading up there, like Papaphilia. Mm. I think uh, Nico Nico's going, Robin Fox. You'll see a lot of lasers with oh, him. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like... It's not, you don't have to go to Japan for, no, that's for, right. for cool things. And it's you can go to Square Sounds in Melbourne next yeah, February as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. 7.52 on Triple R. You're with Bite Into It with Tyler and Vanessa. I am sick of the sound of my own voice after <laughs> that last segment, but it's okay. It was for a good cause. Hey, I do want to say a massive thank you to all the people who supported the station during Radiothon. Um, 
as you just heard, you've still got until next Wednesday to pay up. Uh, if by the time you next hear buy into it, it'll be too late to be eligible for all the prizes mm. and that amazing feeling of subscribing. So do try and get in before the line. Yeah, you could win that um that uh soap package. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of cool prizes. Yeah, I like some, I like me some soap. <laughs> it's great. Um, what's happening with Medium, Vanessa? Yeah, so there's been a little change uh, on the Medium platform. People might know it as as a place where people go and you know, publicize, uh, sorry, publish their writing. Uh, so it's a bit like a, a consolidated blogging platform. What they've started doing is trying to monetize a little bit, which is a good move because places like this can't continue to exist mm. without a revenue stream. So they've introduced a $5 a month subscription and you can read um, particular stories from the Medium Daily Digest. Um, the, the stories will be marked of a star, so you can kind of tell... Um, which ones are part of a subscription service. So you can read a certain amount of those every month for free, but if you subscribe, you can read all of them. And they've shared a bit about how they'll be selecting stories for mm. that. Uh, they have a team of editors who can assign and publish new stuff every day. Um, and the sorts of content that you find on the platform are things like essays, reporting, interviews, book excerpts, features, collections. And they've also launched a new monthly magazine type of capability so you can thematically collect things. So in July, they talked about the future human, um, which is a really great package. Um, in August, they talked about the great escape. And this month, they're talking about youth now. I probably need to go read that and get hip with the kids. <laughs> uh, so it, it's an interesting idea. I'm, I'm always curious about how people try to monetize and whether it will be successful. Uh, it's probably pretty challenging for people who publish on the platform too. And that would be because if your story gets flagged as something that is subscription only, hmm. um, it means that p there's an extra barrier to seeing it. So people can choose to use their certain amount of free reads to access your stuff. Um, and I wonder how seamless that transparency will be, yeah. like knowing which things you'll be able to access and which you won't and who gets rated and whether it's seen as helping your brand if you're mm. if you're marked as you know potentially subscriber only content yeah so That's it'll be it'll be great to hear the feedback from people who write on medium a lot Interesting. It's mm. um yeah for the, for those who, who write on Medium regularly, it sounds like they're going to have to get good at writing headlines to to draw people in if they yeah. want to get those free reads. It's, I mean, uh, I'm yeah. I'm pretty impressed with the content that I'm uh, regularly reading on Medium, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's just the nature of how stuff gets publicised and pushed out there, and that there there could be a lot of dross that maybe I just never see. Mm. Um, but it does give me the sense that it's a it's a high quality platform of course yeah um, yeah so that's kind of cool um in events we've got a few cool events coming up don't we yeah certainly so on the 20th of september the science gallery melbourne in partnership with the microsoft research center focused on digital ethics and society is presenting a free event at 6 30 p.m at melbourne school of design that is a whole lot of places so they've got five amazing guests who are going to be discussing how ethical dilemmas are becoming increasingly complex and technologies are emerging as catalysts for new opportunities and challenges for society. So the guests include Lisa Watts from the Conversation Media Group, Lucy McRae, uh, Matt Cooperholz from PwC, Professor Robert Sparrow from Monash University and Associate Professor Tim Miller from the University of Melbourne and uh, Niels... 
Walters, Walters, who we spoke to about the biometric mirror and is an amazing academic, and Frank Vatier and Nicole Barbie. So it's a really interesting bunch of people. As part of that free event, you'll also be able to take a tour of the Perfection exhibition. Um, so that's the 20th of September, so tomorrow night, um, 6.30pm at Melbourne School of Design. If you want to find a ticket to that, even though it's free, um, go to Eventbrite and look at Biometric Mirror Digital Ethics and Society tickets. We'll, we'll tweet out some links, will we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Google uh, will find it. Too. Yeah, Google will find it too. It's easier. <laughs> um, so the legendary Geek Girl Academy are putting on a one-hour introductory workshop, which is open to all girl geeks aged five and up. And yes, parents, guardians, or whoever else wants to come is welcome and learn with them too. Uh, so this uh, workshop's a terrific way to introduce kids to coding, game making, and building their technology confidence. It's also a fabulous opportunity for parents to do that as well um, and coding alongside of their girls to encourage inspiring tech role models within the home. Um, so this event is part of Girl Geek Academy's hashtag MissMakesCode which is the first initiative in the world created to build confidence and self-efficacy in the areas of algorithmic thinking, programming and coding for young girls aged 5 to 8 years. Uh, so those who don't know about Girl Geek Academy, uh, it's a global movement to help women build apps and create startups. So their mission is to increase the number of women with technology skills. Uh, the current um, internet was primarily built by men and we want to know what the internet would, would like if there were more women building it. Pretty simple mission. I, I support it. Everyone should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, something else we can get behind here. Oh, sorry, the details of that are mm. on Eventbrite as well. Yep. Uh, so it, it's happening on the 22nd of September next week uh, at 9am at Acme, actually, mm. uh, yeah. down in Fed Square. Nice. Yeah, so something else we can get behind is Inclusive Design 24. And if you go to inclusivedesign24.org, um, on the 11th of October, there's a free 24-hour online event for the global community. So they're celebrating inclusive design and sharing knowledge and ideas about analogue and digital um, design and development skills. You tweet your questions there. It's just super virtual and, yeah, kind of easy to tap into. So that's it for events this week. We want to thank you for tuning in tonight. Hope you're keeping snug out there. We've been biting into it, Tyler and Vanessa, and, we'll, and uh, the team will be back next Wednesday. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.